Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One year ago, nine minutes and 29 seconds changed the nation. The lead starts right now. Memorials and marches planned nationwide the year after the murder of George Floyd. His killer, a former officer, headed to prison for Floyd's death. But what else has changed in that time? The House Republican leader finally condemns the, quote, appalling comments from Marjorie Taylor Greene comparing mask mandates to the Holocaust. If there was only someone with the power to take action against her for it. Hmm. Plus, Donald Trump claims immunity in a lawsuit over the Capitol riot, saying he was just doing his job as president. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown, in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with the national lead and the murder of a black man one year ago today that ignited a movement. This afternoon in Minneapolis, a moment of silence for George Floyd killed by a police officer who kept Floyd pinned to the ground with his knee on Floyd's neck. The act amplified by a teenager's cell phone video and seen around the world. His death sparked protests, conversations about race, and debates over patterns and practices in policing. One year later, a more solemn tone with memorials, not just in the U.S., but also overseas. We saw demonstrations today in Britain. A crowd took a knee to remember Floyd in Scotland. And in Washington, D.C., the Floyd family discussed the need for police reform with members of Congress. And just moments ago, the Floyd family also came out to talk to reporters at the White House after meeting with President Biden. His daughter, Gianna, led what's become a rallying cry since her father's murder. Watch. Say his name. George Floyd. We start this hour with the events today marking Floyd's death and efforts nationwide to keep up the momentum. CNN's Omar Jimenez has more from Minneapolis. A year after George Floyd's murder was captured on camera over several agonizing minutes, America is still searching for change to last generations. In Minneapolis, a day of celebrating the life and legacy of Floyd was mixed with somber reflection. We are here, and it's been a year. It's been a troubling year, a long year, but we made it. She and others later paused for a moment of silence. The mayor of Minneapolis joining in. George Floyd is going to save the world. He's going to change the world. He's going to make sure that we look internally at ourselves, acknowledge our shortcomings, and make sure that we all do better from here. It's not just in Minneapolis. Places across the country like Atlanta, Dallas, and more honoring the sobering anniversary. The symbolism is unquestionable. The long-term impact remains in question. So my message to the president, get your people in order. 
So that is my reason of not being in D.C. today, and it's okay. Because I have no doubt in my mind that bill is going to get passed. And when it gets passed, that's when I'll make my way to D.C. I think things have changed. I think that, uh, that it's moving slowly, but it's making progress. Uh, I just want the, everything to be um, better in life because I don't want to see people dying the same way my brother has passed. Minnesota State Representative John Thompson's friend, Philando Castile, was shot and killed by a Twin Cities police officer in 2016. That officer was found not guilty of manslaughter charges the following year. Thompson feels the pace of policy change hasn't kept up with reality. Nothing's changed, just the names. And there'll be another name added to this long list of, of names until we get some real accountability pieces put into law here in this state. We could have saved George Floyd's life in 2016 when Philando was murdered. We could have saved Dante Wright's life when George Floyd was murdered. Had we just like looked at police accountability pieces seriously and said, we're going to put an end to this right now. But others who have tried to work with police for reform say the momentum from the year that's passed could lead to a meaningful future. What is different here in Minneapolis and what is different in the fight that you all are trying to wage? The difference now is that there's more awareness of the atrocities that the Minneapolis Police Department has been getting away with for decades. That's the difference. Now, the community group that particular pastor represents says and tells us that he, his group has been reached out to by the Department of Justice's ongoing probe into patterns and practices at the Minneapolis Police Department. Meanwhile, downtown, the celebration of life for George Floyd continues with art, music and speakers, some of who have been directly impacted by police violence. And of course, all of it comes as we expect a vigil later this evening at George Floyd Square. That's a of course, the intersection where he was murdered a year ago today. Pamela. Okay, our thanks to Omar Jimenez. And turning now to the White House, where George Floyd's family just wrapped up their meeting with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. CNN's Phil Maddenly joins me now. So, Phil, what do we know about the president's conversation with the family behind closed doors? Yeah, Pamela, there's obviously a lot of focus in Washington right now about the policy, and that was certainly an element of the more than hour-long discussion the president and vice president had with six of George Floyd's family members. But it was also the personal as well. The president, according to two of George Floyd's brother, recognizing that this is obviously an anniversary of a death, and there was clearly loss there, and it's something the president focused on. Take a listen. Genuine guy. Uh, they always speak from the heart, and it's a pleasure just to be able to have the chance to meet with them when we have that opportunity too. Um, we're just thankful for what's going on. Being here today is an honor, you know, to meet with the president and the vice president, and for them to show their concern to our family, and uh, for them to actually give an ear to our concerns. And you know, Pamela, the president has repeatedly referenced George Floyd's daughter, Gianna Floyd, 
on the campaign trail in White House events in the wake of meeting her a few days after George Floyd was murdered. And his family members said today that the president took some time to play with Gianna Floyd uh, or Gianna or George Floyd's daughter inside the Oval Office, bringing a smile to her face. But as I noted, there's also a policy element here. The family is in town, is talking to lawmakers, not just the president, trying to urge forward police reform. And they acknowledge that the president said he was disappointed. The deadline of today has been missed by lawmakers. But in their words, the president wants the right bill, not a rushed bill. And Pamela should just note the president just put out a lengthy statement on the anniversary of George Floyd's death. And he kind of underscores there is still an urgency to get that bill to his desk as quickly as possible, saying, quote, last month's conviction of the police officer who murdered George was another important step forward toward justice. But our progress, Pamela, can't stop there. All right, Phil Mattingly, live for us from the White House. Thanks so much, Phil. And I want to bring in our panel to further discuss this. Van Jones, I'm going to kick it off with you. First, you know, after Floyd's murder one year ago today, we saw scores of people join protests calling for change. One year later, I'm curious what you think. How much momentum does the movement still have at this point? Well, um, the president of the United States just spent an hour with a family, a grieving family. Um, Just think back in 2009, uh, President Obama just mentioned that a police officer had acted poorly in arresting a famous black professor in his own home for no reason. And that was in the, the, the roof collapsed on him. That was the first time his poll numbers went below 50%. He couldn't even talk about the issue. So that's how far we've come. Uh, this movement is not going away. Uh, any human system that does not have adequate checks and balances will have corruption and abuse. That's why we have meat inspectors, not because we hate butchers, but because somebody's got to be looking over the shoulder. That's why we have building inspectors, not because you hate construction workers. So the policing system is going to have to come into conformity with every other human system. And this movement is not going to stop until we have that outcome. And Alfie, I want to get your views on this question. You know, it wasn't just black people out there protesting. So many Americans, so many races saw the injustice. But you're not seeing that same overflow of activism and protesting now that you saw a year ago. Why do you think that is? Uh, In a word, I would say racial battle fatigue. I think for those of us who are black specifically, we're tired. Uh, Just think about my day to day and how it occurred to me later in the day, in part why I'm so tired. And my sentiments about fatigue, I think, are probably echoed by Van, by you, by all kinds of folks uh, in this world who are just frustrated and tired with the really slow pace of progress. So to Van's point, we've seen progress, but we would like to see it go a lot faster. And that fatigue of dealing with racism is just too much. I learned this term the other day, uh, racism-induced stress disorder. And I would say there's some part of that. I think for other people of other races, they're probably frustrated because they care for Black people and they're tired as well. So it's just fatigue overall, emotional and physical. Hmm. Van, you know, you'll recall in the wake of Floyd's death, Scores of businesses vowed to change their own diversity and hiring practices. How do you think corporate America can still play a role here? What more should they be doing? Well, you know, the private sector uh, made a bunch of, of, of comments. They posted a bunch of stuff on their websites. Uh, a lot of CEOs made statements and their middle managers across the country were shocked to hear it because there was nothing planned uh, to actually follow up. Uh, some companies have done better than others. Uh, but the private sector has a tremendous opportunity here uh, to go beyond just you know the the statements that have been made on websites and to actually uh, change hiring. And you're seeing real pressure now. It's not just a, a, a nice to do, 
You're seeing a pressure from consumers uh, that want to see uh, brands uh, match their money to their words. You're seeing uh, uh, pension funds and big investment pools of capital saying, if you aren't doing right on race and gender and the environment, you can't get our money. So the private sector, I think, is going to be pushed uh, forward uh, to do more. We are in a moment of real awakening. You mentioned, you know, people of all races marched and all races, you know, a step forward. You know, even Dr. King never had a summer where 20 to 30 million people came out and marched with him. So uh, uh, you don't go back to doing nothing from that. We haven't. We, we're we're in the middle of a process, both in the public and private sector. But the pressure is moving in one direction. That's forward. And you know, Alfie, you had mentioned just the fatigue among black Americans calling out these injustices for decades. But if change is going to happen, you know, this one group can't carry the mantle alone, as Van sort of pointed out there. Absolutely, 100%. I think that it really is going to take, I mean, you think about when we talk about training people about cultural competence, when we teach people about things like critical race theory, even though we know that's a bad term for some people right now, we teach people about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. One of the key things that we talk about is it cannot just be the people who are oppressed. It can't just be black people out here fighting because black people don't own everything. Right. So to Van's point about companies and corporations and organizations, many of those, most of those are not black owned. And so it's going to take people in power. It's going to take uh, what we call authentic allies uh, to take up the fight, because sometimes people can't hear a Dr. Alfie or Van Jones uh, express these these sentiments. Sometimes they need to hear somebody who looks like them. And so it's going to have to take a multiracial coalition of people globally uh, for us to see change, real authentic change. I'm just curious, Van, just going back to the point you made about Martin Luther King and and now, what do you think is behind the, the change and the momentum that we are seeing? Why do you think people of um, other races in this country are sort of being more awakened to this issue and wanting to be more engaged with it? What's changed in your view? Two, two things, techno- technology and demography. Uh, you know, you you. I don't know if there's more or less police brutality or more or less police murder, but it's more visible than ever because of the the cell phones and because of the the camcorders that the police are bringing. So the dimmer switch is moving in one direction, making more and more visible what's going on. And then demography. I don't think people understand. You go to any kindergarten in America, you may as well be going to the United Nations. Uh, the, The younger generation is so diverse in America, below 30 is so diverse in America. You don't have to be African-American to have an African-American friend or, or relative or, or lover or spouse or child. And so you have a big demographic receptivity to this. You have technology. And you also have people, frankly, just willing to speak out more. The Ava DuVarnays and other people in the culture, the, the NBA players speaking out. And so you just have a bigger capacity to sustain this movement, which I've been a part of for 30 years. I've never seen it this big. And also, I understand it's this big. It makes it more frustrating when we don't have the outcomes that we deserve from Congress. But we are going to to prevail. Uh, this is not a movement that can be stopped. It that there will be another video and another march. We are. This system cannot stay the same. There has to be accountability. All right, Van Jones, Alfie, Breland, Noble. Thank you both for that um, really important discussion. My pleasure. President Trump suddenly all about immunity, but not from COVID, while he claims he's not responsible at all for the Capitol insurrection. 
Plus, another ballot audit with much less insanity than the one going on in Arizona, now being used as new ammo by Trump to push the big election lie. Turning to our politics lead now, the federal investigation into Rudy Giuliani is growing. A new court document unsealed today reveals prosecutors have seized material from a wider array of individuals than previously disclosed, including emails from two former Ukrainian government officials. Let's get right to CNN's Kara Skinnell. So, Kara, what kind of information was picked up and from whom? That's right, Pam. So we learned today in a new court filing that had some faulty um, redactions to it that prosecutors have expanded this investigation, the number of people that they had sought search warrants on. So what we learned from the filing that prosecutors had obtained emails and iCloud account information belonging to three Ukrainians. Now, the most prominent of them is Yuri Lutsenko. He was the prosecutor general of Ukraine. He is someone that Giuliani met with numerous times. And the reason why he's interesting is because he had falsely said that the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, had spoken negatively about then-President Donald Trump. And he also falsely said that she'd provided him a do-not-prosecute list, a suggestion that she was somehow corrupt. Now, he's interesting in this because this investigation into Giuliani is very much focusing on his efforts to push for the the removal of Marie Ivanovich. And we also learned that prosecutors had gotten search warrants on the email account of the former uh, head of Ukrainian fiscal service, a man named Roman Nazarov, as well as the iPhone and iPad of Ukrainian businessman Alexander Levin. Now, this these searches all occurred in late 2019 and early 2020. That was just weeks after Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman were arrested at the airport on their way to Vienna. Now, this comes as this comes to light because there's this big fight over the search warrant for Giuliani's office and home. And the Parnas's lawyer here is seeking the ability to obtain any documents that relate to his client and some of these other defendants. Pam. And President Trump, also facing legal trouble, as we know, responded today to his role in the January 6th insurrection from a lawsuit filed by Congressman Eric Swalwell. What's his defense? What, what is he saying? Well, Pam, um, former President Trump is saying that when he spoke to that crowd of supporters on January 6th and encouraged them to head to the Capitol and encouraged them to push to stop the certification of the presidential election for Joe Biden, he was saying that he is protected from that because of his First Amendment rights to speech. And also because when he made those comments that day, he was the president of the United States. And therefore, he said he should have absolute immunity from this lawsuit. Pam? The absolute immunity has been uh, the case that the Trump administration and lawyers have been making for quite some time on other issues as well. All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Let's bring in Preet Ferrara, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Great to see you, Preet. So let's let's start you, with what the former president is saying. Trump's attorney says that Trump's speech was a constitutionally protected act of the presidency. What does that mean? Well, you know, everyone has a uh, and there, there are two issues going on here, uh, both of which Kara uh, mentioned in passing. One is that as a citizen uh, of the United States of America, you have First Amendment protection to speech. There are limitations on that right to speech. You can't incite an insurrection. Uh, you can't engage in seditious conspiracy and a, and a bunch of other things. But it's a serious right. It's a serious invocation of a defense. And he is saying, uh, given the nature of the speech he made, um, that he can't be held liable based on Eric Swalwell's suit. The second thing 
is 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 a distinct defense, and also, you know, from where I sit, not a frivolous defense. Unclear whether or not it will pass muster, and that is because he was acting according to his lawyers within the scope of his duties as president, within his job description as the president, you know, leader of the country, uh, that he can't be sued for things he did in good faith in that capacity. That is a reasonable argument that's made by government officials all the time. It depends on how you view the activity. You know, in, in a in a very different context, in a different case, President Trump has made this argument with respect to a defamation claim by E. Jean Carroll. Uh, he has made the claim that the things that he said that formed the basis of that defamation suit were within the scope of his uh, duties and obligations as president. And at least one judge has rejected that and said the things that he did were outside the scope. So depending on, on you know, the response by Eric Swalwell, which I'm interested to see, uh, and how the judge views the argument, they could be decent arguments to, to uh, dismiss the case, uh, or they could not. Hmm. You have Giuliani as well, his uh, former personal attorney, defending his comments on January 6th when he told the crowd to contest the election with, quote, trial by combat. What kind of legal liability does he have? Well, I don't know that... Uh, there had been a lot of attempts and speculation about whether or not certain kinds of people uh, who are high up in the food chain, like Rudy Giuliani and President Trump, will be held accountable in some way with respect to January 6th. There was an impeachment proceeding. Uh, it failed ultimately in a conviction of Donald Trump. Uh, we have an impasse with respect to the creation of a, of a January 6th commission, which might not necessarily hold people accountable, but might bring out the truth and everyone's full participation. There's the question of what the DOJ is doing. Uh, and so, you know, it's unclear. Um, you know, the language was certainly not good language. Uh, I think that Rudy Giuliani, because he was a private citizen, in some ways is in a better legal position than the president, in some ways in a worse legal position than the president, because the president is the one whose election was at stake and who was making all the comments about, you know, marching to the Capitol. And clearly his intent was, in some way, probably in a dramatic way, uh, to cause the election not to be certified. And that's the basis for the argument, even though he was not as explicit as he might have been, that his words are not protected free speech, but were cause for incitement. I'm going to go back to that federal investigation into Giuliani that Kara was laying out for us. Uh, this investigation has been going on for more than two years. Are we closer to the end than the beginning? What is your view of it? It's hard, it's hard to say. I would get this question all the time when I when I ran that office. And sometimes an investigation takes a year, sometimes two years, sometimes even longer. You know, part of the reason the investigation is delayed, uh, according to the reporting, I, mean, I think this has been confirmed by multiple sources, that prosecutors wanted to get information from Rudy Giuliani devices and premises for a while, back when Bill Barr was the attorney general, at least the prior administration. And so a number of months was lost because they couldn't get that information because the request to, to execute the search warrants was denied or obtain the search warrants was denied. Other reporting suggests that there are 18 devices that were taken from Rudy Giuliani. And now the, the current reporting that we're talking about right now shows that there's a broad scope of material that the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI have obtained. It takes a long time to go through. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've dodged your question about predicting uh, you know, the end of the timetable, but, but these things take time. They've only just obtained the, the Rudy information, there's an issue of attorney-client privilege. There's a special master that will likely be appointed to sift through the things that are privileged versus not privileged. That causes a delay as well. So it'll be some time still, I think. Yeah, I've covered DOJ long enough to know that 
even when you think an investigation is wrapping up, it could be prolonged because new evidence surfaces, new people you want to talk to. So it's, I know how difficult it is to put a timeline on yeah. it. Preet Bharara, thank you so much. Thank you. Condemnation, but no action. The House GOP leaders finally weigh in on Marjorie Taylor Greene's vile comments comparing mask mandates to the Holocaust. Turning to our politics lead, it's about time. House Republican leaders have finally condemned Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene five days after she compared mask mandates to the Holocaust. Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy saying in a statement, Marjorie is wrong and her intentional decision to compare the horrors of the Holocaust with wearing masks is appalling. We should note Greene still insists she said nothing wrong, claiming on Twitter today, I never compared it to the Holocaust, only the discrimination against Jews in early Nazi years. Well, that clears it up. McCarthy used the rest of his statement to attack Democrats, alleging without any proof that anti-Semitism is on the rise in the Democratic Party. Let's discuss this. We've got Scott Jennings here, Chris Eliza. Scott, I'm going to kick it off with you. Do you think Republican leaders went far enough in condemning Green's comments? Well, I certainly think their condemnations were appropriate. You know, they already stripped her of her committees earlier this year for some other inappropriate uh, commentary that she made. So she's already been marginalized within the conference. I think the question that Kevin McCarthy and his leadership team have to ask themselves now is, do you even want to sit in the same room with this person? And by room, I mean the conference room. I, I think voters in districts should choose their representatives. And I think the people of Georgia should get somebody different, uh, just like the people of Iowa did when they, they got rid of Steve King the uh, last cycle. But I think Kevin McCarthy, being the leader of the Republicans, could take a stronger stand here by saying, you know what, I know you ran as a Republican, but you are not welcome in this conference and you're not welcome in these conference meetings. And that way he could say, look, I don't want her here and Republicans in Georgia send somebody else that isn't going to espouse these ignorant, flippant, reprehensible, silly, stupid remarks that stain every Republican that has to be near her. And the bottom line, though, Chris, is that this statement didn't come out until five days after Green made the comments right. about the analogy. I mean, and since then, she has made other analogies comparing these public health measures to the Holocaust. Two more times after that initial statement, why did it take so long for leadership to come out and at least condemn her? Short answer, I don't know, uh, and it shouldn't have. Uh, and another thing that you didn't even mention, Pam, that I do think is worth mentioning is it's not as though uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has spent the first few months in Congress sort of like, you know, being a backbencher and learning her ways. I mean, they kind of know, they leadership, McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Elise Stefanik, they sort of know Elise Stefanik has a track record here. This is not a first time that she said something controversial, offensive, and wrong. That strikes me as reason why they might have acted a little quicker. I'm with Scott. The only thing I'll say is when Scott said they already stripped over committee assignments, the House did. Kevin McCarthy didn't. He had the opportunity to do so. The, the House broadly voted on it. Um, I would think there are options open to them short of expulsion. There's censure. There's a slightly less uh, uh, nasty reprimand. I mean, there are ways that this can be done. It has been done. Dave Schweikert in 2020, Arizona congressman, was uh, censured. Uh, Charlie Rangel in 2010, excuse me, was reprimanded. Charlie Rangel in 2010, New York Democrat, was uh, censured. So it's happened. It can happen. Actions speak louder than words. And I think they have to do more. It's interesting seeing sort of the waterfall of condemnation seeming to start this morning, 
with this tweet from one of the top fundraisers for former President Trump, Jeff Miller tweeted, WTF is wrong with you. I think you need to pay a visit to the U.S. Holocaust Museum. I'd be happy to arrange. Then maybe going forward, you wouldn't make any more disgusting, ignorant and offensive tweets. If I'm wrong and you're not ignorant about Holocaust, then you are disgusting. So what do you think, Scott? Uh, Is that what it took for Republican leaders to finally condemn Green? No, I, I think it was just the, the, the realization here that you, you have people from every corner of American politics who immediately realized this was wrong. This cannot be a viewpoint that's espoused by either major political party. Uh, I'm sure you had donors uh, and other activists calling up Kevin McCarthy and the leadership team over the last few days. I'm sure you've had other members of the conference calling up the leadership team saying, listen, I don't want, I don't want to be associated with this. this your, your job is leadership team is to take care of this for us when people get out of line. And so I think it was most likely a cascading uh, of calls for condemnation that ultimately got them there. Uh, I do think, you know, Chris is right. There are certain things the House can do. To me, just speaking as the the Republican analyst here, I don't want any other Republican stained with these remarks. That's why the condemnations are good. But the action here to me is to physically say, we are not going to allow you to be part of our Republican meetings. You're not going to be part of any strategy talks. You're not going to be part of any policy talks. You're not going to be in the room when we discuss what we as a party are planning to do for this country uh, this year and as we head towards the midterms. I think that, to me, is a vital thing because you don't want any voter out there believing that if the Republicans take the majority, this is going to be somebody that has an influential voice in the conference. But I just want to ask you, Scott, um, because Marjorie Taylor Greene does have growing influence in the party. Just look at her fundraising numbers. After she has said controversial things in the past, her fundraising numbers went up. Um, So clearly she is appealing to a, a, a wide swath of GOP voters here. I mean, isn't she representative of sort of where the GOP is heading right now? I totally disagree that she's that, that her comments regarding the Holocaust and well, I'm not these saying the com- but her in are, general. I mean, she is she's look at her fundraising numbers. Look at her fundraising oh, numbers. Listen, listen. There there is a clear evidence, and she is the current poster child for it. That the incentive structures for getting money in politics are all wrong. You want to go out and work hard, become a policy expert, pass a bill, get bipartisan support, and do your job. There's no incentive. The incentive is in generating the outrage that she is generating. Look at her. She doubled down on all this because I'm sure somebody said to her, hey, there's a marketplace for even the most reprehensible thoughts. The incentive structure is all wrong. And that's why I think McCarthy, he can't fix the incentive structure overnight, but he can distance the rest of the conference from her and the rest of the Republican Party from her. And uh, and I I would hope even former President Trump is watching all of this uh, and saying, I don't want to be associated with this either. If By the way, if he came out and condemned this and said something on this, I think it would matter to a lot of those people that are willing to throw in 25 bucks every time something outrageous happens. I agree with Scott. I also think there's no chance that will happen because Donald Trump is is sort of the er example of what Scott is talking about, which is performance as politics. Politics is theater. Politics as an outrage machine because that generates more money. It generates more TV time, it generates more attention, mm-hmm. and that's why Marjorie Taylor Greene, in her mind, is winning in right. this. Now, is she, she could be losing? The victim, the victim she, of the la- right. right. She's become right. Exactly. Is she losing? She has no congressional committee assignments. Right. She could yeah. eventually be censured. That sort of thing. It doesn't matter. She doesn't care about that. This is a platform to help her get what she really wants, which is more brand recognition. And that's I'm with Scott. Politics is broken in that regard. All right, Chris Eliza, Scott Jennings. Thank you both. Thanks, Pam. 
halfway there, the vaccine milestone the U.S. just crossed that may make you want to throw a big party. We'll be back. In our world lead, this afternoon, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said it's no secret Israel and the U.S. have their differences on the Iran deal. After Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu urged him to stay away from the deal this morning. In Ramallah, Blinken promised Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas $5.5 million in immediate aid to Gaza. CNN's Kylie Atwood examines Blinken's attempt to pave the way for peace in the Middle East after the deadliest conflict in years. A delicate ceasefire between Hamas and Israel remains in place as Secretary of State Tony Blinken visits Jerusalem and Ramallah, making clear that the U.S. opposes any move that could shatter the peace. That includes uh, settlement activity. Uh, it, uh, it includes uh, demolitions. It includes uh, evictions. Uh, it includes incitement to violence. Uh, it includes payment to, uh, uh, to, uh, to terrorists. The ceasefire coming after 11 days of violence, leaving more than 200 Palestinians dead and taking the lives of more than a dozen Israelis. Blinken called the losses on both sides profound. Casualties are often reduced uh, to numbers. But behind every number is an individual human being, a daughter, a son, a father, a mother, a grandparent. A best friend. Blinken meeting with leaders from both sides, with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas committing to rebuilding the U.S.-Palestinian relationship, announcing the U.S. will be reopening its consulate in Jerusalem, which serves as a diplomatic post for U.S.-Palestinian relations, and which the Trump administration closed, and saying the U.S. plans to send more than $38 million in urgent humanitarian support to Gaza and the West Bank. But Secretary Blinken called the violence symptomatic of a larger set of issues, saying this during his meeting with Abbas. Asking all of us to help uh, rebuild Gaza only makes sense if there is confidence that what is rebuilt is not lost again because Hamas decides to launch uh, more rocket attacks in the future. With Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Secretary Blinken discussing Israel's right to defend itself. Thanks to President Biden and you for uh, firmly supporting Israel's right of self-defense. And replenishing Israel's Iron Dome defense system that Israel says intercepted more than a thousand rockets fired from Gaza towards Israel. Now, another subject that came up today was Iran. Prime Minister Netanyahu making clear as he stood next to Secretary of State Tony Blinken that Israel is opposed to the U.S. reentering the Iran deal. Of course, that comes as the U.S. continues to be engaged in a diplomatic effort to try and salvage that deal. Pam? All right, Kylie, thanks so much for the latest there. Well, Trump world now seizing on ballot issues and one small town to push election lots. That's next. In our politics lead, first it was Arizona, then Georgia, and now New Hampshire, where an audit of the 2020 election results is underway. Now, this review is based on an actual issue with the paper ballots used last November in a statewide race. But Trump allies are using it as an excuse to claim the presidential election was stolen from him. 
As CNN's Sarah Murray reports. In Windham, New Hampshire, a weeks-long audit of a 2020 race for state representative is wrapping up. But the election conspiracies persist. They found a lot of votes up in New Hampshire just now. You saw that because this was a rigged election. Despite the early read from expert auditors. There is no evidence that this would be a malicious act or deliberate act. This looks a human error. This is Trump country! Former President Donald Trump and his allies, including Windham resident Corey Lewandowski, are clinging to the down-ballot audit to cast out on November's election results across the country. Even though Trump lost New Hampshire by nearly 60,000 votes and still would have lost the election even if he had won the Granite State. This isn't just about the town of Windham, which we're lucky enough to live in this great community, okay? We're seeing things take place across this entire country. On Monday, Trump baselessly claimed the voting discrepancies were orchestrated by Democrats. Unlike other post-election audits pushed by conservatives around the country, New Hampshire's bipartisan review stems from a tangible gap in vote tallies. Democratic state representative candidate Christy St. Laurent started the saga after requesting a recount. It showed her tally dropping by 99 votes, while the Republicans who won the seats saw theirs rise by roughly 300. Pretty much the whole room was shocked. The discrepancy led to an audit and a fight among residents about who should lead it. I got to tell you, that the, the people, they were pretty riled up. Hundreds piled into a town meeting earlier this month booing town leaders <laughs> and chanting, resign. <laughs> All of this after the town selectman chose an audit expert who criticized Arizona's deeply partisan audit to help lead the Windham Review. Unlike Maricopa County's shadowy election review in Arizona, Windham's audit is independently live-streamed, open to observers and auditors regularly explain the process underway. Saturday, we ran 32 mock elections. Auditors and their conservative critics seem to agree on one issue skewing the count, improperly folded ballots, leading the machines to think a ballot bubble was shaded when it was actually a blank bubble with a crease running through it. Even when this doesn't change the outcome of the election, we are finding why it happens so it will never happen again. But Tom Murray and Ken Eyring, local conservative activists who pushed for an audit, say they still have questions. Why are they not properly sealing the boxes, you know, with, with the tape? And the answer was, well, you know, they're going to be under camera anyway, and the doors are locked. Well, those cameras went out two nights in a row. Auditors apologized for the camera outage but say the ballots were secure. Still, local conservatives are pressing for a statewide audit. One Trump ally say should include the top of the ticket. We're here to count every single vote, that every vote matters. How come we're not recounting the presidential race in this election? Now, they're not counting the presidential race in this election because there's no indication there was a vote discrepancy in the presidential race. Donald Trump lost the state of New Hampshire by seven points, but he remains fascinated by this audit. He's calling his allies in New Hampshire on a weekly, sometimes daily basis to check in on how it's going. Back to you. All right, Sarah Murray, live for us from New Hampshire. Thanks so much. The United States hitting a major vaccine milestone today. That's next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta 
host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.